Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Every once in a while I read something or I see a headline or I start to read an article or hear a story here on the news or whatever else, and I realize I don't have any idea about this. I don't know if what I'm hearing is good, bad, neutral, indifferent, whatever. In this case, I saw a headline today that said, Tiff Macklem, who's the guy who runs the Bank of Canada, Tiff Macklem acknowledges the Bank of Canada is losing money for the first time. All right, Bank of Canada seems rather important to this country. Losing money generally implies something that's not great. But I didn't know the Bank of Canada made or lost money, quite honestly. I thought it sort of just ran our money. Anyway. When you have something like this, the best place to go is to uh, maybe to an economics professor. Let's have a little a little economics 101 here on the Scott Radley Show. Maybe you know all this stuff. I don't. Eric Cam is a professor at Toronto Metropolitan University. He's director of the International Economics and Finance Undergraduate Program. Joins us now. Eric, thanks for this. Anytime, Scott. I hope you're well. I am well. I am, but I am waiting with bated breath to learn about whether I should be thinking this is desperately bad news for our country and our economy, or whether this is an absolute big ball of nothing. The the, the, the story in the Financial Post, the lead is Bank of Canada Governor Tiff Macklem acknowledged Wednesday the central bank is on track to lose money for the first time in its history. Should I care? You should care, but you shouldn't panic. And those are two very different things. So what's going on, uh, I was going to say in a nutshell, but let's be honest, I tend to ramble, is that the Bank of Canada's net interest income, the difference between the interest revenue from its assets and the cost of servicing its liabilities is going to turn negative because the liabilities part is becoming larger than the asset part. And now this isn't going to shake the central bank's ability to conduct monetary policy or it's not going to really affect the decisions that it makes. What it's going to do is throw some uncertainty into the system. So let me give you the, the overview first. When the central bank launched what was called uh, quantitative easing at the onset of the pandemic, it was increasing the money supply by purchasing government bonds over and over again, bonds and, and other assets in an effort to stimulate the economy and keep borrowing and, and accommodate to get interest rates to stay near zero. Now, at that time, and here's your economics 201, the Bank of Canada had been purchasing about $5 billion worth of bonds a week, a week during the pandemic, right? Now, we know that the Bank of Canada has raised the policy rate six times since March. So the bench rate now has gone from 0.25 to 3.75. So I don't want to get too technical because frankly it's boring and I don't want anyone to turn the channel. But what's going on is that the interest that they're paying on the debt is now far higher than the interest that they're earning on their holdings. So so let me just jump in for one second then. So they decided to buy, they've bought these, but they also control the interest rate so that they are essentially creating their own problem and they're trying to solve another problem, but they, by raising their rates, they're creating their own problem for themselves on their debt. Yeah, exactly. It's a, that's exactly what happened, and, and it's because of their overreach and their overreaction during the pandemic. I mean, their balance sheet, which is kind of the assets and the liabilities, which has to balance, it went from $120 billion, which of course is a ton of money, in March 2020, to now it's closer to 575 
billion dollars. $575 billion. And that was a response to the pandemic of borrowing and printing and borrowing and printing. So that added that added bonds to the asset side of the balance sheet, and they paid for them by boosting what they call settlement balances, right? That's the commercial bank's bank accounts where they put that money. But what, you're, what you said to start off the show was brilliant. You forgot that the Bank of Canada is a bank. And so it makes money on what it holds, but it pays money on what it borrows. Now, here's the point, and I hope people kind of can see through the lines here. By holding more debt, right, what they, it, it, does it create a greater interest rate risk? Yes, because when it buys those bonds, Scott, it locks in at an interest rate. So they know the cost of the bonds. But on the settlement balances, what they borrowed, that fluctuates with the interest rate. And so to your point, the bonds are at a fixed rate. What they have to pay back is at a variable rate. And that's why the bank is losing. Because much like us, the bank's costs of borrowing have gone up exponentially in the last six months. Okay, so I understand, and I think most people do, the Bank of Canada. We think of the Bank of Canada as that group in a dark room somewhere that raises or lowers interest rates. So when the Bank of Canada, in its actual banking capacity, has revenues in the negatives that starts to lose money, what is the impact on the country or on you and I? Well, and that's, and that's exactly why I said you don't have to panic, Scott, because to cover its losses, a bank is not a person. A bank is a crown corporation, and it can draw down on reserve funds, right? Because it's a crown corp, a negative equity position does not impede its ability to conduct its monetary policy. So at worst, it's going to have reputation effects and may further push up the cost of borrowing. But have no fear, the Bank of Canada will not close its doors, will not have a Black Friday sale. There is no risk of it going under. But if I have bought government bonds, let's say, so that's with the Bank of Canada, do I worry that somehow they lose value if the bank is now running a negative position? No, you absolutely do not, because those interest rates are locked in and guaranteed by the Bank of Canada by the government, and in fact by CDIC, the Deposit Corp. So everybody can breathe easy that anything they have bought will come to maturity and will be paid out. The real issues here, believe it or not, which don't affect 9.5 out of 10 people in the country, is credibility. The Bank of Canada is kind of losing credibility as they go along here because other people in the world, other countries, other central banks, see that all of a sudden for the first time our central bank is losing money, so they start to raise risk premia if we want to borrow other countries' money. And so it becomes kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy that our bank is going to take a negative position and for a while make it more negative. But it does not impact anybody who has money in a chartered bank or has bought bonds through the government. They're two separate stocks of money. Does it make it more difficult then for our government to borrow money to run programs? Define difficult. If by difficult you mean more expensive, the answer is yes. Okay, so could that be a good thing then? Could this could this be one of those things that gets a government's attention to make them say, hold on a second, we've got to cool it on how much we're going to spend? Yes, I mean, that's a really difficult question because the government will tell you that the government and the Bank of Canada are two completely separate entities, and the government will say the Bank of Canada kind of runs in absentia and they don't watch what they're doing. But in reality, your point's well taken. The government should. I don't know if they will, but they should take notice 
and say that our own central bank is in a negative position. And while that doesn't shut the doors, it puts us at a competitive disadvantage with the rest of the world. So my answer is, I hope so. I hope the government finally wakes up. You know, Trudeau announced we don't have time to worry about monetary policy. Well, maybe now they should worry about monetary policy because it just got more expensive. Just before I let you go, the fact that this is the first time this has ever happened, we've had recessions, we've had high interest rates, we've had debt, we've had all these things before. What has happened that this is the first time the Bank of Canada has ever been losing money? The Bank of Canada overreached during the pandemic. They borrowed and printed from $120 billion. That was what the Bank of Canada was essentially worth a few years ago. And now it owes $575 so it's just billion. Dollars. It's, it's, it's pure volume, nothing else. Pure volume. Yeah. Now, this is, how much, this is how much money they gave away. This is how much money is in the system. And, they, and you know, as they say, you have to pay the piper. The Bank of Canada now has to pay back that debt and they're going to pay it back at a much higher interest rate than they printed that money. Eric Cam from Toronto Metropolitan University. Thanks, as always, for doing this. Appreciate it. Always an honor, Scott. Stay healthy. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. A few days ago, and things have been so busy that we just sort of let this one slip by, but I wanted to get to this because a few days ago, the Artemis, the, the spaceship, not spaceship, the rocket, uh, went around the moon. It was within 150 kilometers or so of the moon. And I got to say, this was the most, un, the quietest, most uncelebrated, amazing thing I can ever remember. I want to bring in Dr. Jesse Rogerson. He's an astrophysicist. He's an assistant professor at York University. He joins us now. I mean, I know it's been a long time and I know we've done all this before, but nonetheless, firing a rocket around the moon in, or in the moon's orbit, it's still an amazing thing. It's, and yet it was almost impossible to find anything about it. You know, you're right. Uh, now that I think about it, because I was in it, like I was up, I was up late watching the launch when Artemis got got going. I was watching the uh the, the burn they did where they lost contact and it went around the moon. And right now it's right at this exact moment, it's like heading towards its like furthest distance from the moon um, or from the earth. So yeah, you, you know, it's not hitting a, large, a lot of fanfare. And I think the main reason for this is that it just it doesn't have humans on board. Like, I mean, if you think about it, there, the, you know, the Chinese have been launching crafts to the moon, like uh, rovers and stuff. They've been doing cool things. They even brought back a sample. The Chinese did that. Um, robotically. And we, you know, NASA has the lunar reconnaissance orbiter that's been orbiting the moon for years and, and taking incredible images. And, you know, we kind of just sort of, when it's, when there's no humans involved, it's like, oh yeah, cool. You know, there's images from space. Uh, I think when, when humans become involved again, it like, it's going to, it's going to dominate the newsreels for days and days and days. Right. And it's just, this one doesn't have humans on board. So perhaps it's not hitting, hitting as hard as it could. Uh, we we had talked on the show um, the other day, though, with someone else, and we were chatting about the importance that this actually worked, because who knows what happens to this program and this whole idea of putting people back on a rocket if this thing had blown up when it left the launch pad or didn't work. <laughs> I mean, no, because I mean, I don't know that in 2022, we have the same willingness to risk human life that we did in the 1960s. And I don't know that we had that willingness. Well, we obviously did in the 60s because there was a lot of astronauts that got lost. But if there had been a rocket that blew, I, I don't know what happens to this program. So the success is huge. Yeah, that's that's why I'm, you know, the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter is the satellite orbiting the moon. I don't really check in on it that often, but I'm a, I'm 
this Artemis one launch that happened and is now or has the Orion spacecraft orbiting the moon. I'm watching this closely, not because there's humans on board, but because of the potential, the, 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 if this mission goes exactly as planned. And as you said, the launch was, was great. It was, it was actually, it was completely flawless. And if the next 30 ish, 35 days go well, and most importantly, the Orion spacecraft comes back to earth it gets through our atmosphere and lands in the ocean in a way that a human can survive comfortably. If all of that goes well, then that means that we're ready to send humans back. And that would that would be exact same mission profile, same hardware, same craft, same everything, except humans on board. And that would happen in about 2024, or 2025. And even more crazy is there'd be a Canadian on board that mm-hmm. mission. So yeah, we're, I'm waiting and watching. I'm cautiously optimistic. So far, the news has been really good that if everything goes well, we're going to see humans going back to the moon really, really soon. And it's, you're right. We, we have a different risk tolerance nowadays, uh, back in the Apollo era, there was a lot more national identity involved there from the, from an American perspective. Um, there was, it was tied up in the cold war. So there was more than just space going on. It was, it was sociopolitical as well. And you know, maybe that allowed, certainly it meant they spent more money at the time, uh, more of the the GDP, but it also meant that perhaps they were willing to just be a little bit more risky. And space exploration was also still in its infancy at that time. They We really didn't know. Now we have like 35 years of, of international space station development and running where we're, we're getting pretty good at humans in space. So the next step is how do we get good at humans in space around the moon? And I think our risk tolerance is lower but we're also much better at what we do. So I, I think it's it's not surprising that it, it didn't explode. You know, the, mm-hmm. they know what they're doing now. Uh, yeah, although, again, the idea of strapping yourself to the top of a missile is still, a, <laughs> you know, an amazingly courageous thing. There's a, a really no interesting kidding. piece that uh, came out uh, yesterday in The Conversation, which is for people who want to find it. It's a great website for just interesting oh, yeah. discussion. And the headline is Artemis, why it may be the last mission for NASA astronauts. And they're not this the, the person who's a, a professor at the University of Cambridge is not suggesting that what you just said isn't going to happen, where they're going to abandon the idea of with Artemis sending people back to the moon. But we've long talked about, well, this will be a quite literally a launch pad to an extension to go to Mars. And what this person's arguing is. Do we really need to be doing that? Do we need, if we can get to Mars and we now have the kind of modern robotics that would allow us to do the things that they can do, do we need to actually send a human being to land on Mars? What do you think about that idea? Oh, that's a great, that's a great question, right? Why, why send humans? Why not send robotics? And I, I think that it, you could ask the same thing of anybody who's ever climbed Mount Everest or anybody who's ever done deep sea diving. You, you know, why are, why are you going there? Why why would you send you there? Why not send a robotic spacecraft or a robotic craft of some kind to those places? And it's and it it's because we we want to do it. <laughs> like the short answer, I think, is we want to do it. We want to send humans. We want humans there. We like it. We it's a representation of us, the people who do it. It's something that is truly innate to their lives. Like an astronaut, they, they're the kind of people who want to put themselves in those risky positions who, to learn and to experience things for all of humanity. And there's just no replacing the human experience. 
you cannot use a robot to to replace the human experience, no matter how hard you try. I get what the author's saying. In fact, it's it's safer to send robots, and it's much much cheaper to send. That robots. was one of the points. That was yeah. one of the points because robots don't need water and air and food and all totally. these other things. But the other the other thing is all the examples that you gave, and they're great examples about Everest and going to the bottom of the ocean, everything else. None of those, nobody climbs Mount Everest saying, guaranteed when I get to the top, I will die there. Though the, the <laughs> Mars mission would be, a, from everything we know, a guaranteed I am going there and not coming back kind of thing, which is, it changes the dynamic a little bit. I don't know. I don't think um, I don't think any government agency is interested in sending humans to Mars and having them stay there forever. Uh, the All of the mission profiles that are being proposed by NASA... NASA is the biggest one. The Chinese are interested in going to Mars. Uh, international communities are, are like Canada is interested in going, but we wouldn't spearhead missions like that. The but all of those are are, are return missions, and we're looking okay. at how you can how can you get a human out into space? So like a, a full profile of a mission to Mars and returning is something like two, two and a half years long. Uh, so you're looking six to eight months there, six to eight months back, and then months, uh, however many months on the ground, and. All of that, all of what we're learning about going to the moon now, what we've learned at the International Space Station is how do you keep it a human alive for two and a half years, not just their food and water, but their physiology, their their bones, their muscle mass? How do you ensure their their psychological stability at such a remote location for such a long time? That's what we've been trying to do. And so NASA is going to NASA will eventually send humans to Mars. And they're definitely the plan would be for them to come back. Now there so are the private sorry, one though. No, there was a private one yes. years ago, and they had said it was a one-way trip. So that has changed for one that would be more official or more sanctioned. Yeah, that was called um, Mars One, I think. Yes, that private yes. Mars One. That's right. And that was it's an interesting idea because a large a large part of the cost of going to Mars is getting humans back, right? So you could like cut the cost in half if you just tell the humans you're not coming back, right? <laughs> um, so that's what that in, that group decided. They said, Mars One, we're going to do this. We can send a colony there. There'll be a permanent colony and they'll start living there. And a lot of people were interested in it. They had people sign up. Uh, but I don't think that's... That, that maybe it's an interesting idea, but I don't think any anybody's really committed to that. I think we all want our humans to come home. We want humans to be able to go back and forth. We want to. We want that technology to exist where you can do the missions. You come home, send a next group of mission uh, off to the next mission. So that's what I think is going to happen. And I think you just you cannot replace the human experience. That doesn't mean we shouldn't be investing in robotic space exploration because we can learn a lot sending robots all over the the solar system. But that human experience is so. I mean, what's the point of saving money if you're if you're not doing what a human's supposed to do, right? If you're yeah, not being yeah. a human, right? It is. Uh, it's a fascinating thing, and as I say, Artemis still uh, still circling, but uh, it, it is worth um, it is worth paying attention these days, even though it's a little bit quiet right now. Uh, Jesse Rogerson, we always love having you on. Thanks for doing this. No worries. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Right now, let me uh, bring in a good friend of ours. He just finished doing his stuff at the CHCH World Headquarters, at the corner of Highway 5 and Highway 6 now. Bob O'Neill from CHCH, how are you? Good day, sir. Well, is it, I mean, look, it, it was a good day, and then uh, like at about 3 o'clock or something, I start getting all these tweets about Borea Salming. I was shocked when I 
You know, I mean, I know he had been in rough shape when he came to Toronto a couple of weeks ago, not even that much, but I was stunned when I found out that he had died. I think we all were. Um, you know, we were almost in sort of celebration mode for his life, really. Uh, happy to see him. He made, a, you know, as many people know, he, he went back to his home in Sweden and, you know, made... I would say annual appearances back in Toronto for charity games, generally for the Hall of Fame weekend. Still beloved, so beloved in Toronto um, as you know the breakthrough European player in the National Hockey League in about 1973. So uh, you know he was a Maple Leaf, and I think the, the the thing for me is that Harold Ballard could not stand European and Russian players yet. For some reason, he loved Boyer Salming, probably because of the fact that he played more of a North American style of hockey compared to what we call European, some call soft hockey. Um, and he paved the way for, I mean, think about it, just right, you know, you think one of the great Maple Leafs right there, Boyer Salming. Uh, he paved the way, Nick Lidstrom, you could go on and on for, you know, Swedish players and then extend it to European players. So, I think we all feel a bit of sadness that we because we just saw him less than two weeks ago at the Hockey Hall of Fame, um, you know, announcement and uh, revealing of the Hall of Fame class of 2023. Plus the day after they honored him, yep. So we got the back-to-back days of emotion and seeing him. And well, you know, sometimes it's I think as much as we loved seeing him, there was that element of sadness to see. You know, he's 71 years old. 71 years old, he still should be pretty mobile and stuff like that. The effects of ALS could no longer speak as of October. You know, so happiness mixed with sadness. So, you know, to see him die less than two weeks later after we just saw him and celebrated that moment, I think rocked so many in the hockey world, and especially, um, you know, Toronto Maple Leaf fans and his teammates. So, yeah, a tough one today. Well, here's the thing. I said at the top of the show, and I, I absolutely believe this, uh, 100% believe this. I think Boreas Salming, I didn't say, I'm not saying best, but I think Boreas Salming was one of the five most impactful players in NHL history because of the fact that he was the first real European to come over and to, and it was because of what he did that so many others followed. They may have come in time anyway, uh, and almost certainly would have. But he was the guy that made it doable for Europeans to come to this league. I, that Again, I'm not saying he's one of the five greatest players of all time, but the impact he had on the game was enormous. Absolutely enormous. I mean, I think we, we, we've heard from so many you know, general managers of that time, uh, to use a line from so many, I think it's Ed McNamara, who, who finally said, like, when Salming really started to establish himself, it's like, where I need I need to find me more of those. Mm-hmm. Right? That being the Swedish and that that Swedish player that could play that National Hockey League style of play. Uh, like I said, I mean, again, known at that time as soft sort of players, European, not really physical, couldn't handle the physical play. And you know, someone, you know, I will I will say, in, in our ilk, in terms of our age group, um, remember what hockey was like in the seventies. A completely different brand of hockey, much more physical. Fighting is allowed and, and really glorified, we'll say. The Broad Street Bullies of the Philadelphia Flyers in their Stanley Cup years in, of 74 and 75. And the fact that that physical element, I mean, people went after him. Yes. And he always stood up for himself. Well, I mean, he came over with, there was not just him, but, but the point was the guy that he came with, Inga Hammerstrom, was... N- 
had the reputation of being the stereotypical European player at the time. And, and you know, Hammerstrom was not Boris Salming, and I don't want to you know, say anything negative about Inga Hammerstrom, but I do wonder if he, if he had come here by himself and had played the way that Inga Hammerstrom played, which was, you know, a very finesse player, but I just, I wonder how it would have changed the look of everything. I, they would have eventually come. The, the European players would have eventually come, but it might've been a decade or two later. Who knows? But, but you, I mean, and, and a decade's a long time. Yeah. Right? How many you of know, those, but, how many players in the 80s and 70s European players would we might not have seen in the NHL? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and like you said, being the first, there's always something, regardless of the sport, um, regardless of who you are, there's always something when you are the first yep. to succeed. And, you know, hey, he's the first Swedish player to be inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame. Um, and look at the great Swedish players that would go on to play the game. As I said, Matt Sundin, the you know arguably at least point wise the greatest captain to to ever wear the Maple Leaf. Look what we have right now, a, a Nylander right now, Nick Lidstrom, arguably a top five defenseman of all time. Yep. And all of these players would turn to you and say, "Who opened the door?" And they would all say, "Borja Salming." And that's they would answer that blind, right? Yeah, and I, I don't want to use the compare. The, the comparison gets strained if you go too far with it. But look, the, there is a reason, among other things, there's a reason Jackie Robinson was a guy who broke down barriers. Very different situation. I'm not trying to exactly compare the two. No, I understand what you're saying. But but if Salming had been a giant failure, it might have been years. And again, I think that if Jackie Robinson had not broken the color barrier, somebody else eventually would have, mm-hmm. but it could have put that back by years. And mm-hmm. so it's just that what Salming did was change the game. He, or he, he didn't, he allowed the game to change. I think maybe the better way of saying it. I mean, I make this comparison, Jackie Robinson, and I, I think this is where you're going because Jackie Robinson was an outstanding ball player, right? He, he is celebrated you know, yes. I mean, to the point that you know, everyone wears his jersey number on one particular day in Major League Baseball. I mean, Jackie Robinson Day. I would compare it to someone like Willie O'Ree, right? The first black hockey player in the National Hockey League to, to you know, but really his career pales in comparison with all due respect to a Jackie Robinson. So I don't know if it was culture or whatever it is, but because he wasn't a great standout player, it's taken better part of almost 50 years to really recognize Willie O'Ree as he went in this year, right? Yeah, and that's, and that's um, yeah, I, and again, I don't want to make the complete comparison because I don't think it's right, but it's, it's there are people that have to be the first, and if yeah. the first is also great, it accelerates the change that that first allows Absolutely. to happen. Absolutely, um, and hence, how long, I mean, still to this day, though it is definitely improving, uh, and the National Hockey League is making, an, uh, uh, I think, uh, a commitment to getting the outreach program and getting its game into areas where, you know, I could say most blacks aren't really into hockey. I would, I'm talking U.S. Um, major cities. Um, it's taken this long for, you know, to have more blacks in hockey right now. Yeah, and and, and there have been great black players. I don't know that there's been... 
the one yet, but I think it's coming. I mean, maybe I'm forgetting something. Am I forgetting somebody? I don't. The, I, 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 you know, I would put Jerome McGinley in there. Yeah, and and I would only say that because I mean, I think it's easy because he's a hockey hall of famer. Um, but if you, you know, ask someone in Arizona who is Jerome McGinley, I'm not sure they know. But I, I really believe that player is coming, and when that player comes. Right. All of a sudden now, um, you know, I think Austin Matthews has changed hockey in Arizona. I think with, with those people that that break through a door and make everyone stand up and take notice, all of a sudden stuff happens. And I, well, I really believe that guy is well, coming. Let, let's be honest here, right? I mean, and this is something the National Hockey League is working on, and 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 I think for it to get to the level of what we're talking about, you've got to be a black American. Probably, right? Like, Probably. you know, you, like I would say it for tennis, for golf, for for any sport, right? When you're a Black American, you can become that marquee name because um, you're right. Jerome McGinley was a spectacular hockey player and and every right a Hall of Famer. Uh, Grant Fuhr, you know, backstop how many teams to Stanley Cups yep. Yep. on those tremendous teams. You know, as they say, <laughs> I love that saying about Grant Fuhr. You know what? He let in four, but he never let in the fifth. He <laughs> That's right. He score five. He let in twelve, but he never let in the thirteenth. <laughs> never let in the thirteenth because he knew we'd score thirteen, right? No yeah. matter what, right? So yeah, when, it's, it, it's, when, it, when it was money time, he came up big, and hence, is, and that's why he's in the Hall of Fame to go along with the the Stanley Cup victory. So it is. A, it yeah, is a sad day. Yeah. That, whoever that Black American is. That is the person that will become transcendent in, in terms of its sport. Sure, and we saw it with Tiger Woods in golf, and you know, and we've seen it with other athletes in all kinds of other sports. Um, Arthur Ashe. Uh, sure, you know what, and, and Serena Williams and oh, Venus Williams, sure. and yeah, so it's it, it'll happen. It's and when that happens, I think you will see the same kind of interest, the same kind of growth, the same, all those different things. Uh, speaking of growth and interest, and since I mentioned Arizona, I got to ask you about this. I, I know that I, I sent you this uh, link earlier in the week because I was just absolutely floored by this. <laughs> You're laughing already. You know what's coming here. Um, so I'm looking at the regular season attendance for the NHL this year. Mm-hmm. And uh, Vegas Golden Knights, uh, at, right now at 103% capacity in an arena that holds 18,021 people. Nashville, 100.9%. I mean, these are amazing numbers. They're over 100%. Uh, 17,273, that arena holds. Washington Capitals are at over 100%. Seattle is over 100%. I mean, they're including standing room or boxes or whatever. Uh, Toronto Maple Leafs, 99.3%. All right, some amazing numbers. Slide down to Arizona. Arizona, which is playing in a 5,000-seat arena. It is the size, basically, of where the Niagara Ice Dogs play. And they are only drawing 4,600 people. They are not selling out in a 5,000-seat arena. Bubba, if this, with all the other stuff that has happened with this franchise, if this is not the exclamation mark that this is a failure I don't know what possibly else could be. I understand all the other stuff and all the excuses, but you're only selling 5,000 seats and you can't do that. You know, it, it, it's an absolute shock to me. Um, and why the NHL and its executives continue to bang down the door at trying to make this work. And, 
I mean, I guess the owners are, you know, even the owners, like, how can you not tell that your product is not appealing to, to your area? To, you, you, I would love to know. Over, I'd love to see a flow chart of what their season uh, ticket sales have been over the past 10 years and compare it to other teams in, in the National Hockey League. It would, yeah, like you said, it would be near the bottom of the league. I, it, why do they? I mean, there are so many other markets. Houston, we've seen that work as an AHL franchise for many years. Even before the Kraken were named as an expansion team, for many years it was talked about that that is a market. I mean, that did well in the Western Hockey League. Uh, you know, the lone American team in, in junior hockey, that that would work. Um, there are so many areas. Maybe even going back to Hartford, Kansas City. I could go on and on with other markets. Why do they continue to want? I know I understand that Phoenix is, I believe, the fastest growing community in the United States at this point right now. And I have a friend that lives there and just raves about it. But, you know, people want to golf in Phoenix, <laughs> golf in Arizona. People don't want to go to the hockey rink. Well, do you remember the line, the old line from Jack Kent Cook, former Hamilton guy, he owned the LA Kings once upon a time, when he said, when he bought the team, he goes, I bought the team because there's 400,000 Canadians living in LA. Now I know why they moved here. They hate hockey. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of what you're looking at with Phoenix. Yeah, it's a growing population. It's a great sports state. They, I mean, they, they, they support the Diamondbacks, they support the Cardinals, they support the, the, the Suns, they support all these teams. They clearly can't care less about hockey. If you can't sell 5,000 seats, then I don't care what the price is. I don't care what the price is. I don't care if you're, if they're $500 a ticket and say, wow, that's expensive. You're only oh, it's talking. A, it's a wealthy, it's a wealthy area. I know, but you're only talking about having to sell 5,000, not like in Montreal where you have 21,000, 5,000 tickets and you can't do that. Every night it should be the biggest, you know what? And I, maybe this is what they envisioned, but if you, you know, have an arena, as you said, 5,000 people seats, which is right. You're right. It's, it's, it, it, it's around, but it's actually less than the Meridian Center. How can you not sell it out? A professional hockey team. Now, I will say this, Scott, <laughs> and you, you tell me what you think. We talk about transcending the sport and those type of athletes. Austin Matthews has only got two more years left on his deal, including this year. What if he goes home? Maybe they sell out the place. Well, they're building a new, um, they're, they're, they're hoping to build a new place. And maybe Austin Matthews, maybe that becomes the, you know, like Yankee Stadium was the house that Ruth built. Maybe this is the house that Matthews built. Um you know, and now the, here's the thing is I'm, I'm looking at some stories even as we talk and they're saying, well, 4,600 is because we've blocked out some seats for, you know, student section and stuff. Look, if you're in Arizona and you're blocking out seats at your game and you end up with empty seats, it's inexcusable. You've got 5,000 seats. If you're holding 400 seats a night for some reason, that's, that's, that, that, that's idiotic. You should be, you should be going, anyone comes to your door and says, I'd like to buy a ticket. You're going to tell them, I'm sorry, no, if you don't have every person possibly crammed into that building. Come on. It just, it's, it's, 
it, it's amazing to me. And it's amazing to me mostly, I think, Bubba, because everyone around here knows um, there could be a team here under some circumstances, and I know that it's complicated and everything else, but that team could have been playing in Hamilton. And you're telling me that if they were playing in Hamilton, they would have sold only 4,600 seats a night? Don't, don't, don't even go there. You, you know, like it's, it's, not even, it's not even worth your breath. Okay? Like, but it just, just it's, it's a, I know, it, yeah. it, it, we, it would be sold out or very close to it. Would be in the high, we'd be in the mid to high 90% sellout every single night. I no, would, we'd sell out every game. Well, it's, I'm looking at the Leafs and they're at 99.3. So, you know, I'll, okay, I'll, I'll say we're going to be between 97 and 98 if we had a team right. here. All right. You're going to have some right. seats that go unsold, but nonetheless, how you just, how the, here's what I don't get. The players, the players, the salary cap is dependent on revenues. How is the players association not raised an absolute stink about this saying we could be in a much more lucrative market that would add tens of millions of dollars more to the pot, which would drive the salary cap up and maybe be a raise for a bunch of our players. How are they not making a crazy fuss about this uh i think you know it's funny i'd heard a line so i, I mean exactly where you're where you're speaking of there and i think i'd heard i, I don't know if it was bill daly I, I mean i shouldn't really say that i wouldn't i don't want to quote him on this or whatever but there was a high-ranking nfl nhl official that kind of said to the the effect that you know what regardless of what we do and however we do it there will always be one or two franchises that struggle and I've heard people in the CFL always say that too, and I guess that's when they point to the Toronto Argonauts. Now I don't know if that has anything to do with their, you know, if their Grey Cup victory will will help them not be one of those teams, and there will be some other team that will we have to point the fingers at. But um, that's sort of the NHL thinking: is that there will always be one, and I guess well, clearly that team is the one. Uh, and then you mix in the fact, Scott, that they're what, whether twenty seventh out of thirty two teams in the National Hockey League in their standings, and generally in that area. So you know you mix in a area that really one struggles with the affection for this sport. Two, uh, you almost have to wonder if they even have time for the sport. And your team, your local team, is struggling for not just one year, multiple years. Always. And yeah. like I mean, I don't know. Uh, this is I say this with all due respect because he was a very very good player. I don't know if he's a Hall of Famer, but when your best all time player is Shane Doan, you know we're talking about the Maple Leafs and Boya Sobbing. His name is, is one of nineteen up in the rafters there, and I know there's much more history with the Maple Leafs than the Coyotes. But I don't know who's the all time best Coyote. I guess Shane Doan. Well, when, when your best player is not even the best athlete in his extended family, because Katrina LeMay-Done would be, would, would be uh, you know, yeah. That's, um, uh, by the way, the numbers, if anyone's interested, uh, hockeyreference.com has the attendance numbers, which is where we're pulling these numbers from today. Um, it's an interesting one. Bubba O'Neill, always appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this today. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.
The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.